All right, well, good morning again. It's great to be with you this morning. And we're continuing in our sermon series entitled Faith That Moves. If you've been with us at all over the past couple weeks, we've been looking at Hebrews chapter 11, and I want to invite you to turn there. We've been talking about how faith should compel God's people towards action. We've looked at that's what God's people of all places of all times have been commended for. We've looked at people like Noah and Abraham, and last week, Pastor John walked us through Jacob and how faith embraces weakness, and this morning, we're going to look at Joseph, so Hebrews eleven twenty two. but before we read it, I talked to a friend of mine and told him I'd be preaching, and his first question was, okay, so what song are you going to open with? Um, so at risk of becoming the song guy, in 2012, a band called The Script wrote a song entitled Hall of Fame. I figured that would be fitting since Hebrews 11 is commonly called the Hall of Faith. And you can hear how our culture defines faith in the opening of this song. So listen to this. This is by the script, Hall of Fame. Yeah, you can be the greatest. You can be the best. You can be the King Kong banging on your chest. You can beat the world. You can beat the war. You can talk to God go banging at his door. You can throw your hands up. You can beat the clock. You can move a mountain. You can break rocks. Some will call it practice. Some will call it luck. But either way, you're going to the history book, and you'll be standing in the Hall of Fame. And the world's going to know your name because you burn with the brightest flame, and you'll be on the walls of the Hall of Fame. Now, the song embodies how our culture views faith. Faith is something in and of yourself and in your accomplishments. You've arrived at your final destination and it's time to make it count because everybody is going to be watching, everybody is going to be waiting, and you have to earn your value to be remembered. That's how our culture defines faith. Faith is entirely then rooted in the present. How will you make this happen for yourself? How will you make a future for yourself right now? How will you use all of your time, your energy, and your efforts to muster up enough courage, enough achievement to make it count? And as, as I hope you'll see, uh, this isn't just the gospel of our culture. Rather, this is also nothing new because this is the very gospel of Egypt as well. And so this morning, I hope to give you a better definition of faith. This morning, I hope that we see that faith that is rooted in a future reality reshapes the present in two ways, by redeeming it and reorienting it. So I want you to to think back with me to week one when Pastor Jin defined faith as not not an expectation, rather a future reality. Now, faith then in a future reality actually redeems the present. It redeems the present. So when I first got told that I was going to preach in this series, I was really excited. Uh, I thought about all of the people that the author of Hebrews mentions and how he's very gracious to them, right? Like Pastor John talked about last week with, Joseph, with Jacob, um, not exactly the best guy. His name means deceiver or heel grabber. I was remembering how blessed I was to have the name Jacob last week. But this week, but this week, We're kind of going to go at the opposite end because I got told that I'm preaching on Joseph. And I remember thinking, 
why did I have to get Joseph? Like the one guy who's got the resume to actually be here, right? You know the story. Sure, I'll give it to you. In the beginning, he was a tattletale, right? But we're talking about the guy who was dad's favorite, got the coat of many colors, and his brothers hated him for it. So they stage his death and sell him off into slavery, into Egypt. And he clings to his faith there as a slave in Potiphar's house and becomes number two in Potiphar's house. The same Joseph who by faith fled sexual immorality with Potiphar's wife only to get wrongfully accused and thrown into prison. That same guy who by faith clung to the promise of God starts interpreting dreams that eventually lands him the gig as number two in all of Egypt. The very same number two in all of Egypt who by faith interprets Pharaoh's dream, predicts that there's going to be seven years of plentiful harvest followed by seven years of famine, and in doing so, rations food, saves the entire nation and the surrounding areas, the promised land included. Like, that's the guy that they, they give me. And I remember thinking, what am I supposed to do with that? And yet, let's look at Hebrews 11, because it'll surprise you what he's commended for. So Hebrews 11, and we're looking at verse 22. Hebrews 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. That's his, that's his crowning achievement. The guy who had the resume of faith, uh, what is he most commended for? His funeral arrangements. His funeral arrangements. Now again, as we've been seeing in Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews is hoping and assuming that we know our Old Testament. So what he's actually referring to is a scene back in Genesis 50, if you want to turn there. Now, if you're like me, you get to the end of Genesis, and you're, if you've done the church reading plan, like you're kind of exhausted with Genesis by the time you get to the end of it. So we just kind of quickly read it after we talk about all of like the cool stuff that happens, and then we get right to Exodus. Yet, the author of Hebrews highlights something in Joseph's life that most of us would, would gloss over. So Genesis 50, starting in verse 22. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived to be 110 years, and he saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Mekir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land that he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Not exactly what you would think for the man with the resume of faith to be remembered. And yet it's precisely here we see the faith that made all of those great things possible. Because for Joseph, it was never about Egypt. It was never about Egypt. By faith, he did all of those great things. And in turn, he became a blessing. He blessed not only Egypt but God's people as they were there. 
Why? Because he longed for something better. The reason he was able to cling to his faith in the midst of slavery was because his hope was in something better. The reason that he was able to run from sexual immorality was because it wasn't about the pleasure that Egypt could offer because it failed in comparison to something that was better. The reason he could be faithful in his role at stewarding all of the food because, was because it wasn't about all the fame that Egypt had to offer. Rather, Joseph's faith was rooted in something greater. And when your faith is rooted in a future reality, then it begins to reshape the present. The present becomes a, a time to be redeemed. Even when that present is living in exile. Remember, Joseph's in Egypt. He's outside of the promised land, which in the Old Testament understanding was you are outside of the direct presence of God. And yet even there we see God's people blessed to be a blessing. Even there we see God's people holding to the promises of God so tightly that when that becomes the final destination, man, you orient everything towards that goal. You become free to be a blessing wherever you're at because it's not about Egypt. It's exactly what happens when our faith is rooted in something better. And yet, you look at Joseph's life and he doesn't hate Egypt. Egypt wasn't simply something to be saved and delivered from. The present isn't just trying to escape. That's not our goal. We serve a God that's way too, way too big for that. Rather, when, when we long for something greater, the present becomes a time to be redeemed. It becomes a time to, to live in expectation of how God will be faithful to his promises. And it's in that faith in something greater than Egypt, God's servant blesses Egypt and God's people. He, he actually makes Egypt look a little bit more like the promised land. His influence it makes Egypt look a little bit more like the promised land, following the direction of God. Yet there's a pagan king on the throne. Yet because of Joseph, they follow the direction of God and we see salvation comes. The present is a time to be redeemed. So if I could just ask you this morning, how are you using your time, your energy, and your gifts to redeem the present in light of eternity? We'll come back to that. Because here's the thing. You can't redeem what you're not oriented towards. So a redeemed present is a reoriented present. For Joseph, he longed to be in the presence of God and his faith was rooted not even in the promised land because he was taken out of it. Rather, his faith was rooted in the promise maker. Rooted in the one who said to his great-grandfather, I will be your God. I will take you to a place where you will be mine. The very same God who reaffirmed that promise to his grandfather, Jacob. Or to his grandfather, Isaac, and then again to his father, Jacob. His faith was rooted in a faithful, promise-making and promise-keeping God. And that's why at the end of his life, he could say, more than anything else, take, take me to where God is. Take me to where God is. God will surely come to your aid. And when he does, rip me out of my grave. Take my bones out of my grave because I, that's where I want to be. 
Remember, we're talking about Egypt. We're talking about one of the great wonders of the world, the pyramids that were dedicated to the pharaohs. And what were the pyramids? They were a collection of all of the goods that a pharaoh could accumulate because that's what would carry you to the afterlife. They were a monument to the success of the pharaoh. That's how you write your name in the Hall of Fame. You show people all the stuff that you have. You do as good as you can and you earn the right to be loved. You earn the right to be valued and then people will remember you when you're gone. And in case they forget, we're going to build this huge triangle thing so every time they look at it, for centuries, they're going to remember, you're awesome. And Joseph goes, I don't want any part of that. Why? Because it's better to be a pile of bones in an unmarked grave in the presence of God than rotting in a monument to my success without him. That's the faith of Joseph. That's the faith that we're talking about. That's the longing for the presence of God that the people of God grabbed a hold of so tightly that it didn't matter what their present was. It became a time to be redeemed. Why? Because it was reoriented towards something better. Because it wasn't about Egypt. It wasn't about Egypt. It wasn't about what the present had to offer. It was about being in the presence of God. And, and can, I, can I tell you, the problem with us, and including myself in this, the problem is, with us is we live like there isn't a better land. We mistake Egypt for the promised land. We become so immersed in everything that our culture and that the present has to offer that we forget that, that God has instilled in us a longing for something greater. We don't build pyramids, but we build monuments to ourselves in our houses, in the kind of cars that we drive, in the technology, the phones, the computers we have. Or perhaps the biggest monument that we build in our day is our social media presence. We feel that we need to constantly prove that we're enough and prove that we deserve to be remembered and prove that everybody knows every single accomplishment that we have, that we present the best versions of ourselves online. We think long and hard about what we post, and if it doesn't get enough reaction, we delete it and we try again. And what happens is we become slaves to the present. We become enslaved to it. Because there's always one more dollar that you're going to have to earn. There's always one more financial bracket that you're going to have to get into, and then you'll feel secure. There's always that one more person that you have to prove that you're good enough. And if we're, if we're honest, it's exhausting. It's exhausting because we have to wake up every single day and feel like we have to prove our value and prove our worth because the world is watching the world is watching. And right now is all that we have. And the gospel presents something so much greater. The gospel presents something that is way better than anything else. And if you want to know what gospel you find yourself believing, how have you been living? Author and pastor Timothy Keller says this, how you experience the present is completely shaped by what you believe your ultimate future to be. How you experience the present is completely shaped by what you believe your ultimate future to be. 
think about the decisions that you've made, the life that you've lived this past week, and I'm including myself in this. What do you believe your ultimate future to be? Have we become so enslaved by the present that we forget that there's actually something far greater? Because when you see something way better, when the destination calls, then you don't get stopped. You don't get hung up at the rest stop. Kids, you know this more than anybody else. When you go on vacation, it's all about getting there. In your sermon boxes, there's a, there's a space for you to write about or to, to draw your favorite destination. I want to encourage you to do that and then share that with your family this afternoon. But for me, when I was a kid, it's still kind of, I mean, I still act this way, but I came from a Disney family. So every other year, we made the pilgrimage from Pennsylvania all the way down to Florida to go to Disney World. And in the, the young Fairfields, we didn't fly. We weren't about that. So it was a two-day drive <laughs> with kids, with car-sick kids, me and my brother. So my parents are saints. But it was a two-day drive, and we always stayed at a hotel. And can, can I tell you, I will never forget, the best hotel we stayed at was the Fairfield Inn. It was the Fairfield Inn. I remember getting out of the car. My dad and my mom let me walk up to the desk. So like I walked in like I own the place. I said, reservation for Fairfield. And they just kind of looked at me. And my mom was like, no, no yeah, that's, we're, the, we're the Fairfields. Like my name was on the sign. It was awesome. And the Fairfield Inn was cool. Not only because it had my name on the sign, but as we walked to our room, right, you walk past like the indoor pool, which after... After sitting in a car for like ever, an indoor pool is like awesome and it was heated and like you could do cannonballs because there was nobody there. And then we went up to our room and there was a nice big comfy bed for me and my brother. But here's the thing, I kick during the night so my brother's always like, you can have the bed because I'd kick them every single time. So like I knew going in, like I'm gonna have a bed to myself. There's this sweet pool. Like the Fairfield Inn is where it's at. And yet as cool as the Fairfield Inn was, can I tell you, when the alarm went off at four in the morning, my dad's one of those, when the alarm went off at four in the morning, you better believe, I jumped out of that bed, put on whatever clothes I needed to put on, ran past the pool, jumped in the car, and was ready to go. Why? Because the sooner I got there, the sooner I got to Disney. Because the cool, comfy hotel bed that provided rest was nothing to be compared to the entire hotel dedicated to a mouse. <laughs> right? The pool was awesome, but it didn't hold a candle to the water park that awaited. When you long for something better, when you get a glimpse of the destination, I knew that my dad would be faithful to get me there. So... I didn't need the Fairfield Inn. I wasn't tied to it. I wasn't going, Dad, can we have a couple more, can we just have a, a couple more hours in the Fairfield Inn? I mean, come on, the bed's comfy, the pool. Like, no, you'd be like, that's ridiculous. Get to where you're going. Get to the water park. Get to the hotel. Get to the, you know, it's a small world ride and the boats. And get to the roller coasters. Like, when that's, when that's calling your name, literally, then, then everything else fails in comparison. It actually becomes something that you, 
you don't mind giving up. You don't mind giving up. This is the kind of faith that we're called to. When we get a glimpse of the promises of God, when our future hope is rooted in the fact that, as John says in Revelation 22, we will see his face and become like him. And we will worship him. We will dwell in his presence forever. Man, that's way better than Disneyland. That's, that's worthy of your time. That's worth giving this stuff up. This kind of faith is, is transformational. It's, it's radical. It's life-changing. Can we, can we call it resurrection faith? Are we allowed to do that? Think back to Joseph. Hey, I know that we're living uh, outside of the land, but I also know that there's a faithful God who's going to deliver. And when he does, I'm participating in that. When he does, rip me out of this grave because I'm going too. One commentator says, for Joseph, not even death could threaten the promises of God. Not even death. My God is that big that not even death can stop him. It's starting to sound a little familiar because, friends, our faith today, right now in 2021 America, is more secure than Joseph's. You believe that? The author of Hebrews makes very clear all of these people died in faith. Every single one of them did not receive the promise that was coming. Joseph, the author of Hebrews says, could see the exodus from afar. Why? Because he knew he had a faithful God who would be faithful to his promises. So he didn't know what it looked like, but he knew who God was. And yet you and I, you and I get to experience a greater man of faith. Jesus, the one who was so embracing of fellowship, of God's fellowship with sinners, that he, he chose to embrace death for us. And yet he doesn't, part, he, he leads a greater exodus, and it's not out of Egypt, it's out of sin and death. It's not away from America, it's out of sin and death. And he calls you to participate in that, not as bones, but as resurrected, life-giving people. This isn't just that you get to participate in your death. No, this is a, the faithfulness of God is way greater than anything that death can do. And when we get a glimpse of that, then death becomes something to be embraced. And this is hard. This is hard because this literally requires your death. This requires your death your death to your ego, death to your accomplishments, death to your ambition, death to any right that you can claim on your own way of life. Yet Paul says when we've been united with him in a death like his, we'll be united in a resurrection like his as well. Resurrection, fa resurrection life always lies at the far side of death. And yet we have a faithful God. We have a faithful God who says, Come walk this with me. Come walk this with me because you're, you're not alone. Because I'm taking you to a place where you will see me. You will be like me. You will experience me forever, for eternity. And not even death can stop the promise. When we get a glimpse of that, when we get a glimpse of that, then we can gladly lay down the things of this world. 
It's like blowing past the hotel because Disneyland awaits. And it's so much greater because it isn't just attractions or rides. It is with the God of the universe who created you, who called you, who redeemed you, who died for you. And every day you live in light of that identity. That's why, that's why Paul can say in Philippians 2, I count everything as loss for the surpassing knowledge of knowing him. And I want to know him. I want to be like him in his sufferings, be like him in his death, that some way I might attain resurrection from the dead. That is our hope. But do, do we live like it? Do we embrace death the way that our Savior did because his death didn't just foreshadow anything. It secured the very promises of God for the people of God and he brings you in with him. So as Jesus was ripped from his grave, you and I can join him being ripped from our graves into resurrection life, but it comes at a price. It means it's no longer about your accomplishments. It means the present is no longer about what you have to do or what you have to earn, but rather it's in the finished work of a faithful Savior. Are we living in light of that day when we stand before God and realize that it was totally worth it? That everything we experience, every pleasure that we lay aside when we stand before the face of Jesus, do we have the faith that says it will be totally worth it? In his Chronicles of Narnia series, C.S. Lewis has a character in the last battle and that character is Jewel the Unicorn. Now, Jewel the Unicorn's awesome. Jewel the Unicorn is the embodiment of faith, right? And she has to do a lot. She fights in the last battle. And um, spoiler alert, close your ears if you haven't read it and you want to, she dies. She dies. And yet at the very end, She's brought to life. She's standing in Aslan's country, which Lewis describes as heaven, and this is what Jules says. I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land that I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Friends, are we bringing the kingdom of heaven here? Or are we simply advancing our own? Because remember, it's, it, it's not about here. Don't mistake the Fairfield Inn for Disneyland. You can give this up. You, you, you can actually not be slave to the present. You're actually free because it doesn't matter what people say about you because you have a faithful God who already says that he loves you who's already gone to great lengths, the greatest lengths, by sending his son to prove his love for you. Paul says that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us. When that becomes what you're living for, man, the stuff of this world doesn't compare. Jesus is a better Joseph. He offers a, a better way of life and he models it for us, Paul says in Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus. This is, this, is what living for, this is what living for heaven looks like. It looks like following the Savior, the one who being in the very nature of God, 
did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he humbled himself. Become taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, embracing death. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's raised to new life and he offers the same for us. So now may the spirit of God continually make us a people who being so confident of the faithfulness of Christ embrace death every single day as we long for the return of our king who's coming with resurrection life, that we too might be ripped out of our graves and given new life with him. Let us live for that day. May our faith in the future reality of being in the presence of Jesus redeem and reorient us in whatever situations we find ourselves in this week because it will be totally worth it. Let's live for that day. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that... Long before we were even here on the earth, you saw us and you knew. You knew that we could not do this on our own. And God, you see us as we become slaves to the present. Far too many times this week, today, going out of here, we will become consumed with how do we build monuments to ourselves can see that in the way that we drive. We can see that in the way that we discipline, in the way that we so-called love our spouses. It's all about us. And yet you show us what real life looks like. You not only give us a promise, but you secure it in the strangest, craziest way possible in your death. And you offer us resurrection life. So God, would you help us to embrace death today? Would you help us to lay down any and all claims of pleasure that we might find for ourselves? That life is no longer about us. God, help us to redeem this present, being people whose hearts are reoriented towards a future of eternity with you. We ask that you would make that real in our lives today. God, would you help us to love you more this week and we'll find that the more we love you, the more we look and love our neighbors as well. So we ask all this in the faithful one, Jesus. Amen.